Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. So welcome to another episode of the Phrenesis podcast. As always, I'm Brad Davis, and I have William Lombardo here joining me. Today, we have another special guest, Jeff Schollenberger, on to discuss uh, Deleuze's essay, Postscript on the Societies of Control. So thank you very much, Jeff, uh, for joining us today. And I, I suppose, first off, could you tell us why, uh, why you chose this essay? What is it uh, that stood out to you? Why did you want to come on and discuss this one? I first read it probably hmm, a good while ago in graduate school. So I'd say 10 or 12 years ago. And, you know, it, it having previously been um, pretty extensively immersed in Foucault's work, particularly um, Discipline and Punish, coming upon this was... <laughs> I mean, it's weird. I think when a friend and I first read it and discussed it, we found it slightly frustrating because um, the, at that time, the Foucauldian model seemed so powerful to, of discipline, seemed so powerful to me that um, when I came upon this essay, it, it essentially gives a great deal of credit to Foucault for that account, but also argues that we... Um, and he writing in 1990 that we're moving into a new era and that the disciplinary structures that Foucault had diagnosed that were largely the, the, you know, his account of how power operated in modern times were in the process of being replaced by a different set of mechanisms that he called control. So again, I found this a little bit like, Oh, I just, you know, figured out how to, you know, this is very graduate school brain, I guess, but, you know, I just figured out how to like apply Foucault to stuff. And now this guy is telling me that, you know, it's obsolete. Um, so I don't know. I mean, but it, it stuck with me and I found it extremely interesting and suggestive. But to be honest, just in the past year, I have come back to it again and again, um, probably for for several different reasons. One is covid and the responses to it. Um, another was thinking about the uh, Black Lives Matter protests and calls to defund or abolish or similarly dismantle policing last summer. And then the third is more related to my ongoing interest in how social media functions as a technology of power in in the present day and how I've seen certain of the trends that I became interested in probably six or seven years ago when I first started writing about social media stuff uh, accelerating over the past year. So, and so this, this essay as brief as it is really um, offers a way into thinking about all three of those phenomena. So it's it's very much, even though it was written in 1990, it, it feels very of the present to me. And I recommend it um, as often as I can lately. 
and, and so is a, a, a way of diving into what Deleuze means by society's control. Um, I think it's worth expanding on uh, what he contrasts to, which is, you know, you referred to Foucault's societies of discipline, uh, which broke from the societies of sovereignty, which were the, um, you know, kind of ancien regime, uh, uh, kind of pre-French Revolution, uh, European societies. And um, so, I guess, in brief, uh, what is a disciplinary society? How does it reproduce its own power? Um, and we'll, we'll leave that there for now. So, I think the important thing that Deleuze here takes from Foucault is periodization, that, that there are a sort of succession of different types of regimes that exercise power in different ways. So the clearest example is probably the quite remarkable opening sequence of Discipline and Punish, in which uh, Foucault describes a gruesome public execution of a attempted regicide toward the end of the 18th century in France. And so this is the illustration of how power operates in societies of sovereignty. Um, it's it's public, it's in a central public space. Um, everything revolves around the, the body of the king and the, the body of the criminal must be publicly and, and symbolically marked with the power of the state. So then he contrasts that to the functioning of prisons and specifically these sort of reformed or even sort of utopian prisons that um, many people attempt to develop in the 19th century, which are often seen as a shift towards more humanitarian treatment of criminals, just as you see similar um, phenomena in the treatment of the, of the insane. And what Foucault argues is that essentially what, what you see there is a, as opposed to the highly public violence executed by the state in the case of the punishment of the regicide, what you see is a, a secret and, and hidden and subtle operation of power that works on the soul rather than the body. And that in, in a sense, um, power comes to operate directly on the interiority of the self rather than on the exteriority of the body. And so this is why psychiatry is such an important, the, the development of psychiatry is such an important illustration of modern forms of power, disciplinary forms of power in, in Foucault's work. So that's, that's essentially the, the succession of one regime of power by another that, that he describes, um, you know, primarily in Discipline and Punish, but also in some of his other work. And we could go into more more detail on what discipline looks like, but that's probably adequate for background. And so I I think that uh, transition uh, from from the body of the soul is really interesting. In light uh, a recent episode we did uh, with with Joseph Keegan was on Ivan Illich's uh, Silences of Commons, which was all about uh, how society around us. 
uh, is ever more enclosed and how the enclosure is seeping to our intellectual frameworks and in, into all aspects of our life. And, and we were curious about how, how that might be happening on the internet in these new domains that Illich wasn't, was, wouldn't have been familiar with. But here, Deleuze, and, and, and you're saying there's a transition away from this idea of enclosure to something different, more pernicious, more fundamental type of control than just uh, boxing boxing you in. And, and the images um, Deleuze gives for this, I, I imagine we'll get there in a bit, are just wonderful. Right. So he, um, yeah, he contrasts the enclosure, and again, going back to the model of discipline a little bit more, um, you know, psychiatry, which I brought up in the asylum are good. So the link between psychiatry and the asylum, right? The, the place in which psychiatry is primarily practiced, especially in the time before psychoanalysis is the asylum, right? So the asylum is along with the prison is one of these representative spaces that illustrate the functioning of power. And part of the point of those spaces is that they instantiate the regime that operates more broadly, but it's kind of material um, functioning is, is localized to an extent in, in the operation of those enclosed spaces. So the school, the school, I mean, all, all of the, you know, really all of the institutions that emerge out of these sort of liberal, uh, many out of these sort of liberal reform projects, such as um, universal public schooling, right? These are what generate these disciplinary apparatuses. And so the idea, and, you know, I, I think there's there's a way this is, a very complex argument, but there's also a way that it's very straightforward to understand. Um, if you consider the way that certain institutions and, you know, one that has been close to home for me is that education, you know, I, I mean, I've been very conscious of the efforts to shift most education to remote for quite a long time. I mean, over a decade, I've, I've been following that discussion. And really, like during the Obama administration, you could find very prominent people calling for education largely going remote, right? So the logic of remote instruction, which is a kind of, um, you know, disenclosure of, of the educational institution, right? And it's, it's, um, ceasing to be identified with a particular point in space and instead being in some sense potentially omnipresent is is probably a, a good and clear example of it. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, while it it came about that almost everyone was in school remotely because of a crisis, the, the groundwork for that had been laid long before. And the logic of it really seemed intuitive to most people, or not not to most people, but to um, to some very powerful people. Um, you know, decades back, it, it was already understood that the basic direction of education would be towards remote learning. So that's kind of a good, straightforward example of of how this works, right? How 
the evolution of technology carries with it a logic that um, that works against the functioning of some of these you know, now older disciplinary institutions that most of which have a sort of start date from around the 19th, early 19th century. And I'm sorry, I I think I misspoke. I, I said that this sort of transition is, is maybe more, more pernicious, but that isn't necessarily what Deleuze is putting forward here, is it? it it's hidden or it, it's, its form has changed uh, at at the end of the first section on history, he said he says there's no need to fear or hope, but only to look for new weapons. You know, it's <laughs> it, you know, in a in a very a very basic Foucault, Foucault reading would be to say he's kind of owning the libs because his you know his move is really to say look at this thing that you took to be this humanitarian reform, and look at how it actually makes the functioning of power more streamlined, more efficient, and more um, subtle, right? And so, it, you know, it can sort of be read in those terms, right? That 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 it's an evolution towards something more pernicious. Um, but, and part of the effect of that is, again, that it, it disrupts this um, narrative. It, it disrupts a kind of weak narrative of progress, right? Where we assume that um, we're gradually evolving towards a more humane way of organizing society. So, yeah, but I, I think the the reading for the quote you just um, offered us makes pretty clear that Deleuze doesn't want to think about it that way, right? He he doesn't want to think about it as a as a decline or as a um, or as an improvement, but rather just a, a a shifting set of coordinates that have to be understood. I guess something that's always bother me a bit about Foucault is that it does seem like there's a little bit of moral progress in not say breaking someone on the wheel and then drawing and quartering them over a week or something. Um, but, but, but his point is taken, but there's also a, not just formal, but substantive change in the, the function of these institutions. So, I mean, even if you, uh, keeping education as an example, say, um, the, the, the function and not just the form of education has changed. So to lose, refers to perpetual training rather than, uh, you know, schooling, um, uh, you know, or something like that. And, and this kind of looks ahead toward the end of the essay, uh, when he refers to the telos of disciplinary societies, um, you know, which are you know, moles that burrow into their subjects versus uh, society's control, which are snakes. Um, and it's much, it's much harder to understand a, a, a snake than a mole. Um, is this an extension of the disciplinary society by another form or is there already or the potential to be a, a substantive change as well the 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 molding of the soul to use Foucault's language in a different way good question yeah I, I I would say there there is an attention to continuities as well as changes um I mean it's interesting to to try to think about what the soul is in this, you know, I, I don't think that's a term that, that Deleuze uses here, but you know, the, probably the, the best um, passage for that is this notion of the individual versus the individual. So he um, states that 
we no longer finding ourselves dealing with the mass individual pair. So the background there is the idea of that, you know, he says earlier than that, the disciplinary societies have two poles, the signature that designates the individual, and he means literally the physical signature, right, which, which is essentially how the individual is bureaucratically um, identified by power. And the number or administrative numeration that indicates his or her position within a mass. So the idea there is that you have, on one hand, um, the operation of power on the individual, and this would be that kind of you know soul craft or whatever you want to call it, right? And and he links this to the signature, right? Which is, you know, you imagine signing bureaucratic forms, right? And that's that's how you essentially make your identity known and consistent to the state. And then on the other hand, you have the mass, which would be the sort of aggregate sum of populations that, you know, Foucault discusses in, in his account of biopolitics. Um, so then we coming back to this point about individuals versus individuals. So the point in the mass individual pair is that the mass is a mass composed of individuals. Um, individuals have become individuals and masses, samples, data, markets, or banks. So this is another one that, you know, I think when he wrote it probably would have been harder to understand than it is now, because it's quite easy to understand what he means in the context of the internet, right? Which is that, we um, we are basically these um, separable, you know, we are constituted again to to power, not, I mean, you know, we still use signatures. So to that extent, the, some of the disciplinary operations are still there, but essentially we are um, these sort of disaggregated tranches of data that can be cut up and, and, um, combined and um you know that they don't the point here is that they don't add up to you know the the idea of the individual whose whose mark is the signature is is the idea of a relatively coherent um unified subject whereas you know this is a way of talking about this sort of fragmentary postmodern subjectivity that many other theorists talk about, but I think it's a nicely precise one, right? Because part of the point of it is that you don't exist as a coherent whole instead. And again, you don't, you don't exist for power for the state as a coherent whole, but as a collection of data sets that are not necessarily integrated and that can also be di further disaggregated and combined with other data sets, right? And so all, and all of your activity is generating more, you know, further quantities of data that can be continue to be used in the same way. Um, so there, there's not necessarily a clear continuity or, or um, any sense of wholeness or completion that would, would be comparable to what the sort of earlier bureaucratic operations seem to offer. And, and so we, we exist for power in that way, but uh, not not isolated in the sense that the disciplinary functions of disciplinary societies serve to constitute the self in the terms of how we think about it as well. And, and 
Deleuze doesn't uh, really treat this subjectively in that way. Um, but, but, the, but the question it, it raised for me and what, what I wonder is, um, you know, that we exist for power as individuals uh, is, is going to serve to reconstitute our sense of self somewhat. And uh, I, I, have you thought about what that would, what that would look like? Uh, it's kind of a scary thought, but, um, but, but, you know, how do we think about ourselves differently if we can barely think of ourselves as coherent somehow? You know, I would say that probably the best and most obvious way to look at this is through social media, right? Um, and that, you know, what's what's interesting is that they these promise a kind of, or at least originally promised some kind of, um, some kind of opportunity to present a sort of coherent unified self to the world in a in a highly curated way but then if you kind of think about them from the back end and you know the an example of where this became a subject of interest was the um the whole cambridge analytica scandal which i've written about which you know was was strange to me for various reasons. One that it, it, well, it was, you know, my take on this is basically that it's, it's extremely clear to me anyway, that whatever Cambridge Analytica was doing, it was pretty haphazard and probably had like net zero effects in terms of the outcome of the elections. But, um, but what was interesting about it was that it provided this glimpse into the kind of back end of what was going on at Facebook. And I think in some ways, the whole, the part of the function of the moral panic around Cambridge Analytica was to divert from the deeper discovery, right? Which was not a discovery of anything hidden. I think it was just a discovery of something that people prefer not to think about that much. Um, and so you know what what you saw there was was the way that um you know in in sort of um there's this there's this kind of um you know to go into a bit of psychoanalytic terminology you know there's this kind of ego identification with the profile right and so that's this kind of um, imaginary relation as lacan would have defined it right which is essentially a kind of mirror structure but then um, underlying that is something far more mystified. I mean, you know, so I, I would say that the way that social media profiles function is a kind of ruse to conceal the actual operation of this kind of process of individualization, right? Where um, this, this kind of illusion of mirroring makes... Uh, makes less visible the way that we become, you know, again, sort of disaggregated into data sets. And that, that that's the real truth of what's what's happening on these platforms, right? And um, so I think, you know, what was interesting about that panic was it kind of, um, it, it in some way covered over the real story, right? The the idea that there was just this one bad company that was associated with 
you know, evil right wing people, you know, was was the story that kind of allowed people to not confront the I mean, you know, that's not it's not entirely true because. I mean, there was a very bad Netflix documentary about it where like there was this guy whose whole thing was like, oh, I need to like get Facebook to give me my data back. So there was I mean, it was kind of ridiculous, like the whole way it was posed, I thought was kind of ridiculous in part because he made it seem as if like he and everybody else like knew nothing about this until the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which would just mean that they were being willfully blind. Um, but you know, overall, I think the effect of it is to kind of muddy the waters about what's really going on and and associate it with a particular political moment um, rather than with the, the deeper functioning of the technology itself. Well, it's weird. You get uh, kind of uh, outbursts of concern over about about, the, about these things. So like uh, even for like, you know, Equifax has a data breach and then people are all of a sudden very concerned about uh, you know, the data being collected on them. But, um, and, and I think, you know, to lose, let's say the, the um, you know, the continuity or the constancy of collection, uh, you know, it seems would make it, it impossible to care about, uh, you know, constantly or with any kind of regularity, you know, except for when it kind of wells up and it becomes a public scandal. Yeah, I think in some way it's, you know, there, there's this, you know, going back to my kind of um, gonzo psychoanalytic account here, um, you know, I, I think the the idea there is that, you know, the the sort of imaginary, um, you know, that, that you can only, um, like the imaginary relation, right, which is essentially a kind of false and illusory one is a necessary part of how the whole thing functions, right? Because it, it sort of has to be mediated through that or it doesn't work at all. Um, but, but what that means is that there can only be a sort of um, occasional and fleeting sense. And again, this is, I think it's possible to know these things, which I feel like I always have from pretty early on with all these platforms. But the question isn't what you know, but what you how you act right and and as long as you act in such a way that you're reaffirming the kind of um imaginary status of these profiles you're you know you're still part of the the system that's been built out of that so and i'm not somebody who you know moralizes about people being on social media or not i just think it's a good way of understanding this very significant development that that Deleuze is uh, trying to describe, and there is no looking back. I mean, there, you know, it's just at this point, it it simply is the way that the social is instantiated. Like, there's there's no um, there's no real outside of it in the same way that there wasn't a real outside of you know the various um, disciplinary systems of earlier times. I'd like to spend a couple minutes uh, kind of going through the different images Deleuze uh, puts forward for, for this logic uh, of control, which I, I found incredibly impressive. Uh, the, the first one being uh, that enclosures are molds, distinct castings, but controls are a modulation. 
like a self-deforming cast that'll continuously change from one moment to the other, or like a sieve whose mesh will transmute from point to point. Or in the disciplinary societies, one was always starting again, from school to the barracks, from the barracks to the factory. On the societies of control, one is never finished with anything. The corporation, the educational system, the armed services, being metastable states coexisting in one and the same modulation, like a universal system of deformation. And I think uh, we've been doing a really good job. Thanks, Jeff, for for helping us with with sort of seeing the the consequences of each of those. But the, the image that really hit me was... Yeah, I've, um, the old monetary mole is the animal of the spaces of enclosure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, but the serpent is that of the societies of control. We've passed from one animal to the other, from the mole to the serpent, in a system under which we live, but also in our manner of living and in our relations with others. The disciplinary man was a discontinuous producer of energy, but the man of control is undulatory in orbit in a continuous network. Everywhere surfing has already replaced the older sports. And so what really interested me with that, you were just saying there, there's no real escape from disciplinary society. But that image at least seems to give me a sense that, I mean, certainly the mole can, can withdraw, can hide under the surface. Not every aspect of, of life is necessarily under the control uh, of the disciplinary apparatus, there, there's some sense uh, of private sphere that, that can be one's own. Uh, maybe if you can't go past the bounds of enclosure, if you need to reemerge to the light to, to interact in society, that's one thing. But, but you, can, you can hide from the apparatus in some sense. And th- this transformation evaporates that. And we, we've been talking about education uh, throughout this, and, and there's a sense, not that one should, but one one always could be truant from school, ditch school. There, there's ways in, in which you can hide, you can escape, you can withdraw, and your life doesn't have to center around the physical school environment. For, for students, there's a retreat. The trans position of remote learning into the home into your bedroom there there's no escape from that you you are constantly um under oversight uh by by your teacher in your own home uh not that cameras are on all the time but the computer's logging when you're working when you're not the there's the loss of privacy a and not just I mean, the, the elimination of the personal sphere is what really disturbs me about this. The, the not being able to hide, not being able to burrow. Um, I, I just find that frightening. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a, another person who's written about this in somewhat similar terms. The writer um, Siva Vaidyanathan, who's a, he wrote a number of interesting books about tech. Um, in any case, he has an essay from a number of years back where he discusses the limitations of the panopticon model for understanding surveillance today. 
And I believe he proposes the term um, cryptopticon. And part of the distinction is the panopticon, which is another of these representative enclosed spaces in Foucault. So the idea of the panopticon is that you have a central tower from which everyone in principle can be observed, but um, you don't know if you're an inmate or prisoner at which moments you're being observed and at which moments you're not. So the idea is that it, you, um, you modulate or you, um, you, you know, control your own behavior so as to ensure that if it happens that you are being observed, then um, you, you won't get in trouble. So that's the model of, of discipline because it, it's a very effective way of working on the, of, of working on the soul and instilling a kind of autonomy, right? But the, the function of the autonomy is to be able to exert um, a control that responds to power, right? So the idea of the, the updating of the panopticon is the cryptopticon is that Part of the function of all, as a similar to what I was just saying about the the kind of um, imaginary mirroring structure of a lot of these the way we interact with these sites is that the function of them is actually to conceal the um, conceal the reality of surveillance at a um, at a sort of basic experiential level, right? It's to it's to um, Far, rather than the panopticon, which is the function of which is to make you behave um, as if you were being watched at all times, um, the function of our our sort of digital platforms and the identities and activities we um, build out on those is is kind of the opposite, right? It's to it's to make us feel free and capable of complete self-expression. Right. And and even if we know on some abstract level that there is this surveillance apparatus beneath it, the whole way the experience is structured makes that feel not true. Right. Um, and this is why and this is how it continually succeeds in getting people to expose themselves um, because it on some you know, very basic, intuitive, and experiential level, it does not feel like you're being watched. So, in that sense, it is the opposite of the panopticon, right? Which the whole whose functioning depends on the sensation of being watched at all times. So that's kind of how I would distinguish between those two things. Um, in other words, part of the problem is it, it's not just the ubiquity of the surveillance, but the way that it's the particular way that it's concealed such that even if we know we are induced to behave as if we don't. As we're, uh, as we've been discussing this and it's hard not to, um, fall and in, fall into this, I guess. Um, we've been using the passive voice a lot and antecedentless pronouns, kind of it or they to describe the surveillance, um, uh, or, uh, you know, who's, who's manning the panopticon or the, the cryptopticon. Um, and, uh, so I, I guess, um, you know, what, 
how do we put uh, antecedent to those pronouns? Um, but, you know, but so, uh, you know, so so clearly for Foucault in societies of sovereignty, you can you can name who the who is, um, you know, to to whom uh, is referred these kind of ghastly public demonstrations of power uh, that are you know uh, completely incommensurate to the crime that occurred. Um, and, and, and somewhat in disciplinary societies, though it becomes a little more amorphous, you also have, uh, you know, the rise of capital proper, properly understood. And he sees the factory as a, um, an, instantiate, an instantiation of the disciplinary society. Um, and Deleuze sees, uh, you know, the, the corporation um, as at least one example of um, you know, who in societies of control uh, is exerting um, that power, uh, and so you know, I guess a, a couple things I want to I want to ask is, uh, you know, what happens to sovereignty? You know, uh, kind of understood in the traditional sense there, because you know I don't think it disappears in Foucault, although maybe it's divided among different you know loci of power. Um, you know, and is you know is the corporation then what becomes uh, you know, it, it, you know the, the apex of the power structure or something? I would say more the corporation becomes a representative form of power. So, you know, it's, I mean, similarly to how the idea in, part of the idea in Discipline and Punish is the way that the prison is the, is the kind of concrete universal that, you know, embodies the um in a specific space the sort of qualities of the entire society that it's part of i think the idea of the corporation in this essay is similar that the corporation um increasingly seems to provide the sort of key to understanding how the entire and you know part of the point here would be that other types of institutions gravitate towards the form of the corporation right um, so, and if you, you know, if you're in the higher education world, that's like a, a pretty well-known sort of old saw. Um, but, you know, the other point would be that government, you know, states themselves attempts to function more like corporations on some level. Right. Um, and, and this often, you know, and, or they, um, they cede certain amounts of of authority or or sovereignty to transnational entities that um, that function more along the lines of and in sync with with corporations. So, yeah, that's kind of how I would see it. Um, as far as the where is power question, I mean, you know, already the Foucauldian model is of this highly distributed form of power, right? Where it's, you know, largely dispersed into these kinds of, um, you know, these, um, these strategies that, you know, take place at the, um, at the very kind of small scale and localized level. And that's already his description of discipline um, yeah, I mean, as far as the, right, so we have a sort of model of sovereignty that, you know, comes out of the, 
um, you know, essentially monarchical societies that are associated with, with that in these analyses. I don't know that this essay, as short as it is, really has a satisfying explanation of what, what happens to that. I mean, clearly there is still a state and that state still does things that no other entity does. And, you know, so you have to think of, of there being these kinds of waning or um, declining forms of power that, you know, continue to operate, although perhaps with um, declining prestige and to some extent, you know, at the behest of other perhaps corporate entities. But I don't think that this text particularly helps us get more specific than that. Um, so we'd have to uh, extrapolate and speculate a bit. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it seems like we'd have to change definitions because, you know, even if we're working with sovereignty as like Max Weber defines it, um, I, uh, I think someone like Deleuze and especially Foucault would say having a monopoly on violence isn't very interesting because, you know, uh, violence is, uh, especially as it exists now, is in like a real way of um, exerting much control. Um, but the, I guess the other thing that makes me uh, um, think, I know Foucault gets accused of this a lot, um, is that there's kind of a really deep pessimism inscribed in this because, you know, if um, <clears throat> the king is the locus of power, it's very easy to see what you have to do to get out from under that you lop one person's head off and um, you know, you're out, you're out from under it. If it's widely and, you know, and Foucault's discre discreetly uh, distributed. So b between these institutions where for Deleuze it's continuously distributed almost, um, it, it, you know, it, 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 it's hard to see what strategies there even are for getting out from, from under that. Yes. And he ends sort of, um, without offering any such, um, you know, particular strategies, um, and instead says that young people, it's up to young people to discover what they're being made to serve, just as their elders discovered not without difficulty, the telos of the disciplines. And I do think there's something interesting here in that, you know, implicitly part of what he's suggesting is that that telos could only be discovered just as it was already waning. Um, so, you know, it's a sort of Owl of Minerva flying at dusk situation. And that, you know, perhaps increases the pessimism in that um, it, it seems as if these, um, these things become evident as the form is already passing away. Um, and, you know, this, I think, also explains why something else that I, I find convincing about this essay is that, what, you know, part of what it suggests is that a great deal of what people understand themselves to be resisting are essentially obsolete forms that are probably already significantly in decline. Um, even, you know, regardless of whether you agree with their, um, you know, the, the, the desire, the desirability of, of getting rid of them, right. That, um, the, that in a sense, 
a lot of the a lot of what presents itself as radical change is is really just kind of um you know putting the final uh sort of shovels full of dirt on something that's already dead and buried um so you know and i mean perhaps a more controversial version of that which what the hell i'll be a bit controversial is you know when you think about the whole policing discussion now you know there's something interesting in the way that policing i mean there is something genuinely unique and in a in a you know what i would view as a very negative way in the way that policing functions in the united states um but you know there are various ways of framing it but in some sense it's a highly regressive and you know, part of its brutality is is its regressiveness, um, and and I would argue part of why it offends not just the people who are most affected by it, which would be one thing, but a lot of people who are not personally affected by it. Um, part of what they find shocking about it is its regressiveness. Um, you know, it, just the. Um, in a in a society where power is is in many ways operating in in this kind of invisible and um, and subtle um, collection of ways, you know, the such an overt um, manifestation of the state monopoly, if it is that on violence, is simply an alarming fact. Um, because it, it seems, you know, deeply regressive. Um, so, you know, and the, and the fact that it was objected to by many people who are not personally affected by this sort of violence is no accident, right? Because those are the people for whom such things are, you know, have the capacity to shock, right? Because they believe themselves to live in a society where, you know, overt acts of public violence are, you know, by the state, going back to what, you know, beginning of discipline and punish are simply not acceptable, right? I mean, you might think of like the way that, you know, there used to be corporal punishment, right, in schools. Um, now there still is in some societies, right? But, you know, that, this sort of gradual stigmatization of that that type of direct exercise of physical violence, I think is is indicative of a a shift in understanding how power should be should be exercised. And so I think I think you can sort of think of the anti-policing sentiment um you know which which is responding to real um you know genuinely shocking acts of violence as a, a partly a um an alarm about the regressiveness of this particular institution, right? That it that it it does not um it 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 does not resemble these these more sophisticated uh you know sort of modulating operations of power that that Deleuze is describing here it's a much brutal and more crude and cruder form of um form of of state power i find it worrying though what what the consequences uh, of similar brutal or cruel action through 
a more subtle, complex, abstracted form of, of policing might entail, though. That, that I don't know what that would necessarily be, but it is worrying. I think we have... You know, here I think it's worth looking to science fiction. I mean, Deleuze says, um, he, you know, the example he brings up that's a real one, even in 1990, are sort of ankle bracelets, right? Um, and, and he also brings up, um, he also brings up, car, like, he cites his, you know, longtime collaborator, Guattari, as saying, you know, you can imagine a city where one would be able to leave one's apartment, one's street, one's neighborhood, thanks to one's individual electronic card that raises a given barrier. But the card would not just... Would, could just as easily be rejected on a given day or between certain hours. What counts is not the barrier, but the computer that tracks each person's location, illicit or illicit, and affects a universal modulation. So, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, <laughs> I'll turn to science fiction in just a second, but even just thinking about what we already see, I mean, first of all, you know, I use my phone to pay subway fare here now. So that effectively means the, I mean, I remember when they first started using easy pass for, um, you know, bridges and tunnels in New York. This was a long time ago, nineties, uh, maybe I was young. Um, and I remember there was like some libertarian columnist in the New York times who objected strenuously to this. And I thought that was a bit ridiculous, but, um, at the time, but you know, it's interesting because the libertarian, the sort of right-wing libertarian columnist was, was not particularly far off from, uh, from Deleuze here, but yeah. So combine two things that, that already exist and that we know about one, um, we all carry, you know, this, this tracking device that Deleuze is describing, we've all got it already. Right. I use it to pay my subway fare. Um, where I live, it's, there's a lot in Brooklyn, there's a lot more cash only, but like I have a friend who lives in another neighborhood and she was telling me she just like never goes, she never has to take her wallet anywhere because you can just pay with Apple pay or whatever, almost anywhere. So, and it's like preferred. Okay. So we have that. And then we also have combined that with, um, social media bans, right? So social media bans are often arbitrary, unexplained, and totally impossible to contest, right? So if you combine those two things, just imagine the logic of a social media ban being being introduced to access to physical spaces or or access to, you know, perhaps virtual spaces more important than, you know, Twitter or whatever. And what you end up with is the idea that, you know, you again, based on the same logic as the social media band, you're, you're flagged for some reason as being dangerous. Um, you could simply be arbitrary. And again, consider, um, you know, if you go to the airport now, you know, there are these like retinal scan things that you can do instead of the usual check-in. That's all a private company, right? Um, these are all like subcontracted services. So, if you combine all of that, what you end up with is um, these kind of privatized systems that are subcontracted to private corporations, um, which can make those kinds of arbitrary decisions. And, you know, not that governments couldn't and didn't, haven't done similar things, but, um, 
you know, you, you can imagine being unable to board a plane because you can't get because for some reason the company that runs the retinal scan thing has flagged you and um, you can't find out why you can't um, you, you don't know who to complain to. Um, you know, all your uh, emails and phone calls are ignored. So, I mean, that's that's kind of the realistic version of this that I think is already pretty much in place. And then, and there there was serious consideration of by some uh, at least serious proposal of placing some of the rioters and protesters uh, from the the capital uh, on a no fly list, which is. Um, a very serious instantiation of, of just that. And, you know, I think the other, the more extreme case even would be, I mean, I brought up sci-fi before. I mean, I think Philip K. Dick's work is probably full of dark prophecies that we could talk about for a while. But I was thinking of the notion of the precog and, you know, Minority Report being, you know, I mean, which is a story than the Tom Cruise movie. Um, so, you know, this idea of pre-crime, right, that, that you can, um, you can essentially, uh, the, the crime shit that, that law enforcement shifts to crime prevention, how does crime prevention happen? Well, perhaps it monitors the patterns in your social media posts and, you know, runs them against a sort of database of, um, previous, criminals and based on that determines that you're a high risk individual and as a result of that you know puts you on the no fly list prevents you from prevents you from getting jobs prevents you from accessing you know whatever um so these are all like pretty i mean in other words the the whole pre the the precog um pre pre-crime concept is you know it's it's easy to imagine how it could be executed without these without this kind of gnostic element of the the people who are just like born with the special ability to see the future like you don't need that right all you need is um data mining but and then i don't know i mean there's there's more i could say about dick but that's probably the the best example yeah i mean there's serious considerations by law enforcement agencies to uh you know basically adopt machine learning policing methods um, that, like you said, identify, uh, you know, pre-criminals and it's, it's something that could very well be in place in every law enforcement agency in the country in the next 10 years. And, um, I mean, I mean, you know, talk, forget the level of surveillance and everything, but you want to, um, talk about something that you could imagine exacerbating, already present racial inequities in the policing system um and uh you know that 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 can be justified with the the veneer of kind of data-driven impartiality which is what a lot of this is um and it's it's scary to think about maybe to push back a little bit with Deleuze's uh comment there's there's no need to fear or hope there is some avenues in which uh predictive or something of the sort might be a great way to allocate youth program resources or uh, pre-intervention programs of some sort of humane sort that do discourage uh, the making of crime uh, or, or try and um, build up 
I mean, I suppose earlier you, you were saying just that some of the progressive institutions that were set up to try and uh, help people ha- have caused these shifts and, and caused harms. But th- there is a, a side of this coin that there are ways in which these tools could be earnestly beneficial. Um, although I, I think probably on that they wouldn't be and the potential for abuse is much greater than uh, track record of successful interventions. Well, I think it also depends on whether you, you take the Foucauldian stance and kind of draw a moral equivocation between overt acts of violence and, uh, you know, widespread acts of control and surveillance. Um, not, not that, not that either one it, it, it is good. Um, but then maybe moving from one to the other, it, it, you know, is a genuine improvement. Uh, they create serious other problems, though. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's partly a matter of just trying to see it as a totality. Um, I, you know, I, I think I, I don't I don't find that very satisfying in terms of knowing what I should support or what I should do. But, you know, it's, um, you know, going back to the whole policing debate, you know, I, I think there were people who were sort of saying oh, well, you know, you want to abolish the police, well, you'll you'll just end up with a proliferation of private police forces, which may be less accountable than what we have. And, um, you know, that isn't, that isn't based on nothing. I mean, there are many parts of the world where you do have that kind of already happening. And I mean, it's, it, it's already reality to some extent here. But the point would be, um, I think what, when that debate came up, it was like, well, um, it became just, I mean, the, you know, the people who re- who uh, responded to it would sort of say, well, you know, we just have to not let them do that either. And it's like, well, but you have no means by which to, pre- I mean, and this goes back to the whole question of corporate power, right? You, you have no means by which to prevent, you know, Amazon from creating its own private police force like that. <laughs> that form of power is not, um, you know, again, because of the sort of weakened status of these uh, types of, um, you know, s- sort of sovereignty, um, there, there's not really any means to do that, right? And, you know, simply saying we won't let it happen is is sort of potentially in denial of that. And I, I think the bigger question is just, you know, what, um, what's the, what's the overall picture of how these different, these different forces interact? Um, you know, I, I think, um, one way that, I mean, one way that American power is particularly <clears throat> strong Strange to try to make sense of is precisely the the in many ways kind of primitive brutality of how it functions and the way that it is actually I mean particularly the the American state is kind of technologically unsophisticated in the way it operates compared to other societies including ones that are you know supposedly more economically backward like China right where where really the 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 state um 
marshalling of of the most advanced technologies is far more advanced than it is here and and that is part of why they were able to um impose a far more successful um strategy against covid as i would understand it so in other words we have biopower but it's it's actually kind of incompetent and like not very you know it's it's not even good it's not even like you know, it's, I mean, I think, you know, this kind of goes back to the, are there good sides to this? It's like the problem we have here, I would say, is that we don't even get the benefit, you know, in China, yeah, you're surveilled all the time. We're surveilled all the time too. We don't even get the benefits of of having a, a successful public health management system, right? We don't, we don't even have a basic like functional track and trace system, right? So, and I'm not, I'm not saying that system is better. I mean, I'm not saying that system is better overall, but it is ironic that we, you know, we we still have these problems that uh, of the post-disciplinary society that Deleuze um, diagnoses, but they don't even like give us many of the <laughs> dividends, right? I mean, we have mass surveillance, but then we also still have like brutal police, you know, totally unnecessarily violent policing. Um, we have we have mass. You know, we have mass surveillance um, and we have, you know, corporations with huge amounts of, say, genetic data. Right. Um, but we also don't really have a functional. You know, we don't have the capacity to execute a, a centralized national public health um, strategy that that works to any meaningful extent. So so my right. my sense of America is like. We really we're getting the bad stuff, and we're not even getting the good stuff that might come with it for the most part. Well, I, one thing you could say about about China is that they have uh, successfully, and I don't I don't think it's a, a, a good thing or something I'd like to live under, but so, so combined the society of of sovereignty and the society of control. Um, there's no there's no question about where the locus of sovereignty in China lies. It's with the party, um, which has basically successfully reined in every single corporation in the country, which still serve the functions that corporations in the U.S. do, but those are all, you know, disaggregated and, um, uh, you know, not marshaled to, you know, serve what the government's interest is or, or, or something. Um, and um, I, I, like even a scarier concept, I guess, is that you end up with this kind of alliance of uh, you know, the, the state and capital like that, or the state reigns in capital and then marshals it to exert the control. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you could imagine at least that, uh, you know, kind of having uh, decentral, you know, decentralization, not that much sovereignty to then marshal these resources uh, may lead to a, a less frightening dystopia than a more frightening dystopia. I don't want to say it's good, but maybe it's less awful. Yeah, well, you know, you have a, I would say, and I'm not the first to say this by any means, but the main, you know, one of the main things we've learned from COVID is just which states seem to actually function to some extent and which don't. And interestingly, I mean, and this is, you know, <laughs> this is in a sense, uh, um, a wrinkle in in Deleuze's model, perhaps. Um, I mean, it's interesting that he 
you know, he says that vi- he talks about viruses as the, the threat, although he, he appears to be referring to computer viruses. Um, but, you know, the, the viruses are the typical threat um, faced by the societies of control. Um, but what, you know, one of the main things that distinguished um, the effect of COVID responses and um, n- that nobody really wants to talk about that much are um, the capacity to effectively seal borders. Um, and this was, you know, this was done in China mostly, but it was also done in, you know, New Zealand. I mean, it was also done in Taiwan, you know, China's sort of democratic um nem- longtime nemesis um it was also done in new zealand so you know it's um and this is sovereignty right um board you know borders um although i think it's really it's really with um the disciplinary version of sovereignty that um you know with like what foucault discusses in security territory population right where you really have a, a an explicit attempt by the state to um, determine, you know, how many people live within its borders, how many people from without it can admit, um, and things like that, um, which, which is less of a, you know, it's, it's not dealt with in great, with great effort prior to that. But anyway, you know, what's interesting is that the, the effective control of COVID seems to have involved an interesting combination of, this extremely crude sort of older mode of, of sovereignty, which was in many cases enabled just by being an island, right? Um, but at the same time, it combined that with this um, much more modulated, you know, essentially the, the test and trace protocols, which were entirely reliant on being in precisely the situation you know, Deleuze is describing in this, um, in the passage I mentioned. And, you know, if you're in, if you're in China, I was actually trying to go to China, um, which is a long story, but so far I've not succeeded in getting in because it's, um, it's so hard. I have a visa, but there's, you know, further complications. In any case, you know, in China now, it's like, it's exactly what Deleuze describes um, in that passage I read before about the, um, the card or whatever, where, you know, um, yeah, one would be able to leave one's apartment, one street, one, one's neighborhood, thanks to one's individual electronic card that raises a given barrier, but the card could just as easily be rejected on a different day or between different hours. What counts is not the barrier, but the computer that tracks each person's position position and affects a universal modulation. I mean, that is literally the Chinese, the current Chinese, um, test and trace system, you know, which gives you a health code on your phone. And that means that if your health code is green, you can move around freely. And if it's red, you can't. And, you know, that's enforceable. You know, you literally can't, you know, board the subway or a bus if you if you don't have the green code. And, you know, one can see how that could all be automated in the manner of these kind of um you know, you could just have sensors everywhere that would, um, you know, flag you if you pass through a doorway or whatever. I mean, it's it's exactly the 
that system that's that's being used. But interestingly, again, in combination with this much cruder form of border control. Um, and, and it, you know, it's fascinating to me that people talk some about how effective the the test and trace system is in, in various places. I mean, not just China, right? Some some other countries have, have done it well also, but um, although mostly in Asia. But at the same time, um, you know, it's it's fascinating to see particularly people on the liberal side of things like praising um, New Zealand, right? Because if if the U.S. had done, if Trump had done what Jacinda Ardern did, you know, in terms of border closure back in March, it would have been, it clearly would have been denounced as fascism. Um, so, you know, that's that seems like the. I mean, and and it's interesting to me to go off on a on a bit of a tangent here. How, um, I mean, and I think this has to do with the the role of the corporation, right? The the fact that the multinational corporation is the the kind of universal institution in a sense that that sort of defines values. Um, you know, really the the idea that um, people were comfortable with the idea of being restricted. People were more comfortable with the idea of being restricted in local movement than in international movement, right? So in other words, the idea of like not being allowed to go across town to see your family or something was regarded as an acceptable sacrifice. But had had there been a move to shut down international travel entirely for a period, you know, that would have been a step too far. So there's something there's something interesting about that in relation to how these you know the, these kind of ideals of control which which actually depend on having subjects who are constantly in motion um you know beyond the boundaries of the nation state kind of become transmuted into these moral values about what is and isn't permissible for the state to restrict well, I mean that 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 makes me that makes me think that these things then have a tendency to kind of, um, uh, this is this is probably going to put, be to put it too simply, but to to um, <clears throat> undermine uh, the kind of traditional technologies of sovereignty that would be required, as say in China, to make them effective. So if 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 um, either societies of control foster a kind of cosmopolitan ethic or um you know or or that the priority of those is reversed and the cosmopolitan ethic um kind of fed into into that um it you know it, it seems that that uh that has the tendency to weaken um some of the kind of centralized state powers that uh um we would most worry about marshalling these kinds of these kinds of technologies, but you know, if 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 corporations can end up doing it just as effectively, then maybe it doesn't much matter. I mean, again, I think the this the fact that we're seeing you know homeland security, right, which is a classic expression of this kind of ideal of the the sort of wholeness of the nation, um, you know, which which is in a way very regressive. Um, but the fact that it's at the same time, you know, essentially permitting private corporations to 
you know, it's, it's outsourcing or subcontracting these kind of biometric control systems to private corporations. I mean, and this goes back to those, um, you know, the, the, when they, when they first introduced the, um, what are they called? The sort of, you know, the full body scan uh, machines at the airports, um, you know, which, I mean, as I recall, there was some sketchy, you know, relationship between the company that produced those and the Bush administration, but I don't remember the details, um, but, you know, that's not, that's nothing unusual, par for the course. But, you know, so, so, but the fact that the control of the border is being turned over to, you know, multinational technology corporations is itself a pretty, um, pretty revealing thing. And, you know, it's, I've, I've been kind of, one thing I've been obsessed with over the past year is there are so many movies from like the 70s to the 90s that are about just kind of classic popular movies that feature these kind of sinister military industrial complex companies. Um, you know, you can think of like various um, Verhoeven movies, um, you know, Robocop, Total Recall. You can think of um, Terminator. Term- Terminator movies. You can think of all of Cronenberg's movies. I mean, that this is like a you know, these corporate, this representation of the the kind of sinister technology corporation, which often was being subcontracted by the government to do something, um, it is, you know, in Terminator, it's missile defense, right? That, um, that kind of the leads to the, the, the singularity and so on. But, you know, it, it's interesting to me that I, I'm not, I don't know, I might be, um, I might be wrong here. Maybe there are good examples of that, but it's it's fascinating to me how conscious filmmakers were of that kind of dimension of power in that period. And um, I maybe maybe I'm wrong here, but I feel like maybe that's less of a like the the sinister military industrial complex corporation is like less of a central actor in in uh, movies recently. My only my only. Uh hope there was the uh, rebooted Blade Runner uh, you know, m- movie which which kind of falls into that genre and so uh, you know, I guess that came out a couple of years ago so maybe not but that could be a, you know, a sign of a kind of reawakening of uh, concern with these things. I mean I thought the movie um, somewhat congruent with the, I thought the movie um, Sorry to Bother You was pretty good and like had some uh, definitely had some resonances with with what we've been talking about and was a little bit in that, in that tradition. And I mean, it's definitely felt, you know, during COVID, um, the whole, you know, the whole sort of pod living system that's being marketed in that felt, felt extremely um, prescient and, and real. So. And the, the data collection methods in like uh, West, Westworld, which is a, uh you know, uh, pr- pr- presumptively a, a form of entertainment and a, a, a distraction, uh, you know, a more extreme version, but somewhat akin to going online, which is basically a, a front for a corporation to uh, collect uh, or I basically, you know, surveil people at their most uninhibited, um, you know, sort of along those lines too. Oh, I was just going to say the last season... It it really I was thinking about it when I was talking about how 
um, you know, how digital platforms function through this kind of misrecognition, this kind of imaginary misrecognition, because the last season, I mean, I found it sort of unsat. I found this idea that the revolution is going to come by just exposing. It goes back to that, like the guy in the Facebook documentary who's like, I just want to ha- I just want to know what the data is they have on me or whatever. Um, which is itself, as an aside, kind of an illusion because, you know, as Deleuze describes here, you know, we're not talking about some kind of unified picture of the self that the data offers. Like, that's the illusion offered by the user interface. Rather, we're talking about just these disaggregated tranches of data that can be um, split up and recombined and so on. But you know, it's similar in the concept of of Dolores's revolution in the, the last season of Westworld is sort of that she's going to expose to people the way that they're being controlled by this apparatus. But I just I don't find that a compelling idea because I think the problem is that on one hand you have the overlay of cynicism, right? The overlay of of course I know, right? Of course I already know this. And then on the other hand, you have the the way that the, the you know, again, the imaginary misre- misrecognition by which we're kind of lured into these systems sort of bypasses that cynicism, right? Because it's much more immediate and the, the mode in which we interact with it is much more immediate and visceral. Yeah. And on, on a couple of occasions, uh, Black Mirror has done s- some interesting things sort of in the realm but i haven't watched too much of that i think it is odd though you were talking about how much attention was given to the cambridge analytica uh stuff earlier that captured the popular imagination and attention in a way that palantir for example doesn't and i i think it's curious the types of organizations we demon uh, demonize for doing these things, and the others we we sort of forget or, or ignore. And, and certainly, Palantir I think is a good example of kind of the neutrality of these problems. There is, in a sense. Disrupting terrorism, there are serious security concerns that they try to address that are a good thing in a way that, I don't know, it's difficult for me because there are real problems that a lot of these institutions that you're, you're right are, are being sort of some subcontracted out are trying to fix. But I see a, a future, I fear that, that the side effects are going to be perhaps far worse than, than, than the things they're immediately trying to treat. Yeah, I think this, um, I mean, one issue that um, Deleuze brings up is... And this this somewhat relates to some things we've been mentioning, but um, he does he does talk about older methods borrowed from the former societies of sovereignty may return to the fore, but with the necessary modifications. So you know he I think it's important to um, 
avoid uh, treating it as too too complete of a of an evolution, right? That that there are sort of residual um, elements that that remain part of the um, that remain part of the mix in terms of how power seems to function. So he does. He does acknowledge that, and I, I feel like a lot of what we've been discussing is kind of um, trying to figure out, you know, how the how these different forms of power sort of interact. Probably because I think that's that's something he suggests, but doesn't really um, doesn't really spell out fully. But that also, I think, an interesting way to take this essay and use it today would be to look at, you know, look at it comparatively in terms of how different societies are are sort of um, evolving with somewhat different admixtures of these different technologies. I suppose my final question for you, um, maybe Will has more, but this has presented sort of an evolution of, to an extent, decentralization, certainly diffusion of power throughout society. Do you think that that is a trend that will almost necessarily continue to become more diffuse and less visible, or at some point is it going to have to reverse itself uh, and power will reemerge more like the, the, the sovereign example of discipline? It, if it gets too diffuse, may, maybe it's ineffective or do, doesn't have the same control it, it, it sought. What's the future of this? Continued decentralization or a re-centralization of power and authority? It's a good question. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's interesting you brought up um, China before, somewhat in relation to this, where I think you have a, you know, you have a very clear centralization. Although my understanding, without being a great expert, is that. Um, you know, for example, part of what went wrong with COVID is like the, the, the early on is the, the particular way that sort of power is distributed among kind of local party committees um, creates certain problems that might be equivalent to how, you know, states are unable to coordinate here. But in any case, um, so so it's it's probably a little bit more complicated than it looks to us. But nevertheless, um, you know, there there I'd say I would kind of suggest you have at least one model, right, that, that some other states seem to be embracing, where you have a kind of complicated um, system, uh, a sort of hybrid political economic system that in that sense is highly complex and that, that includes these sort of um, semi-autonomous zones within it. Um, you know, these sort of special economic zones have been a big part of the Chinese economy for you know, ever since the Deng Xiaoping reforms, but at the same time that, um, you know, you have a, a strong reassertion of central state power. So I would say, you know, in some places, that's probably a model that has, has a certain amount of, um, of appeal that will probably, you know, other states will try to replicate or are trying to replicate. I mean, what I would say in the U.S. is that basically what you have are, the increasing market share held by a few, you know, a shrinking number of, of giant corporations, right. Which are, you know, basically functioning as, 
quasi-autonomous states already, right? And we can think of Amazon, you know, which is is effectively a kind of, I mean, and this is, as an aside, you know, this is also like Walmart. I mean, something that people don't understand about Walmart is the degree to which it's essentially a technology company because it, it's, you know, part of what it did was revolutionize supply chains in a way that it enabled it to um, distribute and lower prices so effectively as to squeeze out competitors. So you have these kind of um, quasi-autonomous, you know, almost state-like corporate entities, um, which have a great deal of of impact, of social impact and power, but also have like almost no responsibility, right? <laughs> so the the responsibility is left with these somewhat moribund um, sort of older forms of state power, which are incapable of, you know, even if their intentions are good, are incapable of exercising it effectively. So I think at some point you have to reach a breaking point with that. And I'm not, you know, I don't know exactly what that is, where either these, um, you know, and the, the really dark version of that is kind of the sorry to bother you one, where it's like, Basically, the next stage is that these corporations, you know, we return to something like company towns where, you know, your your whole life is, you know, your, your sort of cradle to grave existence, like in some sense, belongs to Amazon. So that, that's a one kind of, quote unquote, responsibility, which which really isn't. And then but, you know, the alternative is you have to figure out some way of of reasserting other forms of power that will be be a way for people to democratically exercise greater responsibility over their you know lives and communities but i think that's also part of what everyone is who's serious politically is struggling with because we're sort of working with these somewhat again moribund and like residual forms that that clearly need to be renovated in some way but it's a very uh, complicated project, especially when you're up against the, you know, the Amazons and and uh, WalMarts and Googles of the world. Thanks a ton, Jeff. This was a really fun, really interesting uh, conversation for me, and I'm I'm really glad you picked this Toulouse essay for us. I'll, I'll keep reflecting on it. You you've been working on a lot of projects lately. Any you want to shout out and tell our listeners about? Um, just outsider theory, the blog, and now there is also a podcast. So just interviews with people thinking about stuff related to the topic of the blog, which is pretty much how um, theory circulates outside of particularly academic or institutional spaces, and that that can take a number of different forms. But that's that's largely the focus of it. So. Wonderful. Well, we'll have the links to that uh, in the description below. Thanks uh, again, listeners. Thank you for thank you for listening. Uh, leave us a review, uh, share with your friends, and make sure to check out outside of outsider theory and some of Jeff's other work.